Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Dwight A. Moody. Um, welcome, Dr. Moody. Lisa, I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Lisa, I am a Baptist preacher and just turned 65. I've spent my ministry in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. I've been pastor of several churches. I taught for many years at a Christian liberal arts college in Kentucky. And seven years ago, with the help of the Lilly Endowment of Indianapolis, I launched this ministry called the Academy of Preachers. Our mission is to identify, network, support, and inspire young people in the call to gospel preaching. And we define young as roughly between the ages of 14 to 28, although we're kind of loose on both ends. And this year we're starting a track at our events for young people who are a little older, maybe up to 35. We have festivals all over the country. We consult with other groups who want to have festivals. We have camps. And we foster communication among and between these young preachers. And we try to open up opportunities for them to meet people, to earn and win scholarships, to find employment, all sorts of things like that. Any way that we can help young people like yourself to do exactly what you're doing, Lisa. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate your vision. I was at the Academy of Young Preachers um, in Atlanta a few years back, and it was a, a huge blessing to me, and um, it kind of helped shape um the direction of my ministry um especially you have what you call preaching circles right. where um you get together with other other young preachers and you kind of discuss the sermons that you heard because you you're able to present a sermon in front of your peers right and it was it's a really challenging time because we get to challenge each other and one of my mentors also always says truth has many sides and when you're in those preaching circles, you're able to kind of challenge each other and sharpen one another, as Proverbs says, and get to the core of the truth. And it really helps you to see that even though you bring, you know, your schooling and uh, your training to the circle, other people have different perspectives. You could all be looking at the same text and have a different perspective. And it's not that. And you and every person in the group has studied the text, has had mentors look at their passages. And so it really challenges you to say, OK, I have I have this idea of what the text is saying, but I have to humble myself and realize that I have to have a, as I call it, a humble hermeneutic to realize that I could be wrong about this passage. And so Lisa, um, Lisa I love your testimony. And of course, what you're describing is our National Festival of Young Preachers. In Atlanta, January of 2013, two and a half years ago, we had 130 young preachers from all over the country. You were one of them who came and preached. Our theme that year, you remember, was gospel and the city. Mm -hmm. 
and itself a provocative and interesting and imaginative uh, theme. And all of these young preachers come from the almost every Christian tradition you can imagine, and some we haven't heard of, from Pentecostals to Roman Catholics, from Evangelicals to the Orthodox, uh, including all of the mainline uh, traditions, they all came. We give them an opportunity to preach a sermon up to 15 minutes. We have a sermon evaluator in each session, and as you s- describe, we create what we call preaching circles of these young preachers. We put them in these circles where, just as you describe, they pray for one another, they help each other get ready to preach, and they talk to one another about what they're hearing and feeling and sensing and learning. And it's a powerful event, isn't it, Lisa? Yeah, it is, very much so. And every year when we evaluate, when the young people turn in their evaluations, the, the two things that rate the highest year after year after year are the preaching circles, and that's what you've mentioned, and the diversity. Because, mm-hmm. Lisa, what we have noticed is that with rare exception, all of the young people who come to our festivals are coming out of what we might call a silo experience. Their formation as Christians and their formation as Christian ministers has been in a very uh, a very restricted, I want to say, uh, in environment, so that the Catholics are just with the Catholics, and the Baptists are largely just with the Baptists, and the Lutherans have had their training just with the Lutherans, and the Pentecostals, or the um, uh, Church of God. They've come out of schools, they've come out of seminaries in churches where they've had vibrant experiences, they've learned to love the Lord, they've been called to preach, but their encounter with other Christians who have a slightly different take on things is very limited. Mm -hmm. So the Church of God, they don't know how Lutherans interpret a text. And, of course, many of these young people, like myself, we grew up and were taught to be suspicious of people who were different, Christians who were different. That if they didn't say things the same way we did, if if they didn't if they didn't focus on the same verses of scripture and interpret them the same way, even if the way they preached was different, we were taught to be suspicious. Well, do they really know Jesus? Do they really understand the gospel? Are they really converted? Are, do they really believe the Bible? All these sorts of things. So you come into the festival like this with, with a very narrow understanding of what the Christian experience is. And then you're in conversation with all these different people who surprisingly love Jesus like you do. They love the church. They love the gospel. They've had this call to preach. They're trying to serve the Lord. 
But they look different, sound different, talk different, think different, and sometimes even pray different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. What what gave you this, what experiences in your life led you to this kind of passion to, to do something like this, to bring other denominations together? I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was teaching at Georgetown College in Kentucky. It's a liberal arts college with a strong reputation. It's affiliated with the Baptist. We had a strong religious life on campus. We had, in any given year, more than a hundred students who would self-identify as preparing or seriously considering a vocation in Christian ministry. Mm -hmm. But out of these 100 and 125 students, there were very, very few who wanted to preach. They wanted to do youth ministry or social justice or work for an international NGO or they want to do praise and worship music, they want to go into counseling. Very few were interested in in preaching, and this puzzled me. And I came to think that these young people had lost, if they ever had, the conviction that preaching is a socially significant vocation. These young people were smart, talented, they loved Jesus, and they wanted to make a difference in the world but they weren't convinced that preaching was a platform from which you could make a difference in the world. So I began to think, well, what can I do with our Baptist kids up here in Kentucky? And in a spontaneous, unplanned, unrehearsed conversation with the folks at the Lilly Endowment in Indianapolis, we got on to this topic. And unbeknownst to me, they were also concerned about it. And at the end of it, they simply said to me, Dwight, we're going to give you some money and let you start a ministry that addresses this need. Well, I was thinking about the Baptist kids in Kentucky, but they, at the Lilly Endowment, they... They've got their eyes on the whole country and what's going on in religious life, especially in the schools, Mm -hmm. church-related schools, seminaries. They know what's going on, and they knew that what I was seeing in Kentucky and describing in Kentucky was true all over the country. So they said, let's do something about it. They... They encouraged me to submit a grant application. I did. They funded it, and that was the summer and fall of 2008. And so we started in January 2009. We put out a call that we're going to have a festival in January of 2010, and 92 people showed up. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Pentecostal, Evangelicals, they all came in the middle of a winter storm. And we had a terrific time, and since then we've had many, many, many festivals around the country and a constant inquiries from around the world of people who want us to go to England or South America or Europe or 
Africa to have festivals there. And the interest, Lisa, as you surmise, is yes, it's on preaching. That attracts people. And But it's this radically ecumenical vision and event that brings people together. They are interested in getting together with people who are different than they are. It's amazing. Yeah, it truly is. And I would encourage um, our listeners who might be interested um, in the um, in what me and Dr. Moody are talking about to check out its Academy of What's the website? Academy it's of Preachers? Academy of Preachers dot net. Academy of Preachers. Academy of Preachers dot net. We have three festivals this fall, one in just outside of Boston, one in Louisville, Kentucky, and one just outside of Austin, Texas. We had one this summer in Wisconsin. And our national festival that's coming up in January will be in Lexington, Kentucky, where our offices are and where I am right now. We will be in the Lexington Hilton Hotel beginning January 2nd, about noon on Saturday, January 2nd, and we will finish about noon on Tuesday, January the 5th, and the registration is open. All the registration is online, and anybody listening to us who is discerning a call to preach or has embraced a call to preach is invited to participate, to register, and plan to come. Yes, and I would definitely encourage you to do so. I want to um, shift gears a little bit and ask you, um, Dr. Moody, why do you think that uh, the apologetics in defending the faith is an, import, an important exercise for us to ga- engage with other people that think differently than us? We live in a world that's very different. Our Christian world is very diverse. Once upon a time, most of the religions of the world and most of the Christian groups of the world lived in pretty isolated situations. In that sense that Baptist people lived together in Baptist communities and Catholic people lived together in Catholic communities, went to Catholic schools and most of the people on your street have been baptized in a Catholic church. Uh, the same could be said largely of Pentecostals, of Lutherans in certain parts of the country. But now, things are all mixed up. And schools, colleges and universities that were started by the Baptists now have, many of them, have a significant minority, sometimes even a majority of students who are Catholic, or at least non-Baptist. Seminaries these days, many of them, attract young people from all of these traditions. Young people tend to go to a seminary near them, rather than pick up and leave. Many people are in seminary, they are working full-time, they've got families, they can't leave, so they go to whatever the seminary is closest to them. So we find ourselves uh, mixed up and stirred up in a pot, a big gospel stew, you might say. And then, of course, you've got the media. You've got the Internet. You've got television. You've got podcasts where people have access to information, to ideas, to people 
people to practices that they'd never heard of. And it, we could either be afraid of it and fear we're going to get infected, or we can embrace it and receive it as the presence of God, the voice of God, the word of God to us. I'll tell you this little story. When I was teaching, I had a student, a Baptist student, a very devout Baptist student from southern Illinois, and he came to me and said he wanted to take a tutorial in the history of Christian thought. A tutorial is a kind of class which generally is one professor and one student, and you meet every other week. The student reads a book, writes a paper on it, comes to the professor, reads the paper, and then they talk about it. It's the kind of teaching that uh, is uh, common at the great English universities of Oxford and Cambridge, and this student wanted to go over there to study. So I, I devised a reading list for him all the way from Tertullian in the second century to Tillich in our own for the last century. He read all of this stuff, including Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and John of Damascus and Luther, all of the, all the great writers. Well, two years after he graduates, well, I might say that just reading this material from the traditions other than his own was a challenging experience for him. This, of course, is what education is all about. It pushed his mind. It expanded his imagination. It challenged his thinking. It it forced him to think more deeply about what he thought and to shift it in di- as he dialogued with these great thinkers. Well, two years after he graduated, he calls me and says, Dr. Moody, I'm getting married. I'd like for you to come. I said, well, I'll be glad to if I can. He says, we're getting married in the St. Michael's Orthodox Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And I said, oh my, you're marrying an Orthodox girl. And she said, he said, no, I'm marrying my high school sweetheart. We have both converted from Baptist to Orthodoxy, Christian Orthodoxy. Oh, wow. I said, well, where did this come from? And he said these words to me, two of the most powerful sentences anybody has ever said to me. He said, Dr. Moody, do you remember the book you gave me to read by John of Damascus? I said, yes, of course. It's called The Orthodox Faith. He was an 8th century Middle Eastern Orthodox scholar. He said, when I read the book, I discovered myself. Now, not everybody who reads a book from another tradition has that kind of dramatic experience. But everybody who encounters someone who is different has the potential to be opened to new ideas, to fresh understandings of the gospel. He went on to go to seminary in the 
at the Orthodox Seminary up in New York and is now the pastor of an Orthodox church in Iowa. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he came to our festival in 2014 in Indianapolis and preached for us on the plenary stage and did a wonderful job. And I've stayed in touch with him about all of that. So, in order for us to engage world culture, whether it is religious or secular, we have to have some experience with people who are different than we are. Mm -hmm. In order for us to engage somebody who is thinks differently and maybe is a secularist or an agnostic. We have to have experience in listening to and understanding and appreciating people who think different than we do. And one of the ways to do this is to sit down with other Christians who are love the Lord as much as you do, but read the same text and come out at a little different place. And just as your experience down there in Atlanta shows, learning how to do this, learning how to be open, not giving up everything you believe or capitulating or uh, and all of that or converting every time, but at least being open to understanding and to appreciating somebody who thinks different than you do about well, the Bible, or about Mary, or about baptism, or about any spiritual experience, uh, and understanding why they think this way, and how they can think this way and still love the Scripture and love the Lord as much as you do. This is a profound experience, and it is at the core of spiritual maturity as well as as well as education itself. So this is what we try to do, a little bit of it, at our, our festivals, as you testified a little earlier. Yeah, because I think it's it's so important in our in the Christian world. I come from, um, a, I feel like a melting pot myself. I grew up um, non-denominational, uh, leaning towards charismatic Pentecostal, not oneness, but just, you right. know, um, Right. And I went to Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, which is one of the most conservative Baptist seminaries right. in the U.S. And um, so during my time in, in Virginia, I went to a traditional uh, black Baptist church and National Baptist Convention. Um, and so I just had so many different experiences. Um, and there's truth in in every one of these circles that is needed in order to defend the faith. And sometimes if you don't, if you don't recognize that you'll think that your group or tribe has some kind of lock on the truth. Um, when in fact truth has many sides and if we could come together and kind of sharpen one another, we'll be more, a more effective witness to, to the body of Christ. This is very true. You know, one of the things you learn as you are educated, and you spoke about your own education here, you learn the ideas that are important to you and where they came from. You learn 
about, let's say, the charismatic movement. Now, people who grew up in the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, it's a powerful experience. It's a powerful tradition. As a matter of fact, for the last hundred years, it's been the most powerful and important Christian movement in the world. But when you learn about how it started and when it started and why it started, it gives you an appreciation for its strengths and its weaknesses. It helps you to assess it and evaluate it. And you learn about people who were critics of the movement and why they were critics of the movement. And it forces you to say, well, these critics of Pentecostalism, are they right? Are they wrong? And this is this process is true. It's what everybody goes through, whether you're a charismatic or a Catholic or a Calvinist or anything else in the Christian movement. And uh, this is so important. You know, I note you, the name of your ministry is Jude 3. Mm-hmm. Jude, and based on Jude 1 and 3. Yes. And you, you chose that verse because it is widely used and wide, widely quoted, this part of it. Contend for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. Right? Yes. But a little earlier in that same verse, it has this phrase. As I was preparing to write to you about the salvation we share. The salvation we share. That is a powerful statement of the unity that we have in Christ. Because I ask myself, who is included in that we, the salvation we share? And, you know, sometimes when we start out, we think it's only the folk in our church Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the people that think like us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then when you, you meet other people and learn and learn that, well, well, they've been saved. They know what. They're following Jesus. They're reading the Bible. They're praying every day. They're they're trying to testify to Christ. They're doing things I can't do, and and they're they've got more courage than I have. And you learn that the we in that phrase, the salvation we share, is is a bigger we than you thought. Right? That's very true. Very yeah. True. Yeah. So learning this that. That the that the Christian community is bigger, more diverse, more wonderful, more spiritual than you ever thought, than we ever thought. This is a this is a spiritual transformation in us. I remember the first time I went to a Lutheran church, Lisa. I'd never been in a Lutheran church. I was, I'd been a Baptist pastor for probably 15 years. I'd never been in 
a Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. And my dad and I were in Jerusalem. And in the old city of Jerusalem, there is a very well-known Lutheran church, the Church of the Resurrection. Mm-hmm. And the paper announced that a certain American scholar preacher was going to be in the pulpit on, a, on that Sunday, and we decided to go. And I don't remember a thing the preacher said, although I still hold him in very high esteem. But I remember the service. They read the Bible three times. They had three lectionary readings, which I I knew was common in some traditions, certainly not the Baptist tradition, even though we like to call ourselves a people of the book. But here we were. <laughs> yeah, you know, in the Baptist church, they, they're lucky if they read the Bible once during a service. But here in the Lutherans, they read it all three times. It was wonderful, the Psalms, the Gospel, and the readings. And it was a powerful experience for me because I felt like even if I had encountered a lousy preacher who didn't know the Gospel, I had been introduced to the saving message of Jesus through those Scripture readings and left that service profoundly touched by it. And I could give that kind of testimony for so many of my experiences, my first ex- my experience in the charismatic, uh, my experience with the Catholics, uh, it's the same way. I and this is what I tell the young people when they come to our our festivals. I say all of you are going to hear something, see something, feel something outside of your comfort zone, and you can either be afraid of it fearful that it's going to infect you with something strange and deadly, or you can you can receive this as an opportunity to be a person of influence, to believe that everybody there needs to hear your voice, your message, what God has given you, you that you have something to contribute. It's like you know, a big mosaic, or sometimes I say it's like an orchestra, and everybody has an instrument to play. Mm-hmm. So this is the experience that we have at these festivals and why it helps to shape us for speaking to and in a very diverse world. If we can't handle the diversity in our own Christian community, how can we possibly handle the diversity and the pluralism that's in the world, I don't know how you can do that. Mm-hmm. And it makes you more aware and it sharpens if you can't, in the preaching circles, if you can't defend your position without being defensive, then you have, you're going to have trouble, like you're saying, talking to someone who doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture at all on any level. You on know? any level. And you know, one of the things that uh, being in these preaching circles teaches us is how to listen. Mm -hmm. And even though at our festivals we, they're known for giving attention to the speaking side of the ministry, the listening side of the ministry is every bit as important, especially in dealing with our diverse world. 
people who complain about the Christian witness or who criticize it, you know, part of what we need to do in our apologetic ministry is just to listen to them mm-hmm. and not be threatened by them and not be angered by them and not be irritated by them, but to listen to them and to say, well, where is this criticism coming from? What experiences have they had that makes them hostile, that makes them feel this way? I'll tell you this story. I I quoted this in a sermon yesterday at a funeral. E. Stanley Jones was a very famous Methodist missionary to India. Mm -hmm. And he and he met on one occasion the great Indian Hindu leader, Mahatma Gandhi. And, and E. Stanley Jones said, Gandhi, you write so much about Christ, and in your writings you talk about Christ and uh, Christians. I said, why haven't you become a Christian? And Gandhi said, I love your Jesus, but so many of your Christians are so unlike Christ. Wow. Yes, and yeah, this that's a wow thing. It's a great in- indictment. So I want to ask, well, who did Gandhi meet that so turned him off to Jesus? What did he see that led him that kept him as an unbeliever? What experience did he have with Christian people that so turned him off to our our witness? Well, listening to his testimony is, uh, it may be, in many cases, the most important apologetic thing we can do. Mm-hmm. Just listening to people and trying to understand why it is they don't want to, want to believe. And many times we find out that they're, the source of their unbelief or the source of their anger, their source of their irritation has very little to do with Jesus or the Bible or what is true and beautiful about the faith. But that all takes listening. And uh, so listening to me is as uh, important to the apologetic task as speaking. Even though in our festivals, of course, we give pride of place to the speaking part of it. But you know how important listening is in in the circles. Mm-hmm. It's very important. And I think um, so many people that I talked to, I was just talking to um, someone um, who recently gave up on their faith, gave up, you know, the Christian faith. They've grown up um, in church all their lives and mm-hmm. their encounter with um, different um, tradi- different beliefs. They have Muslim friends, Hindu friends, right. and that within themselves, they didn't have enough within them and a foundation to kind of dialogue Right. Other face. And then they kind of just gave up. And um, I spent a large part of that conversation listening. Um, I think the conversation was like an hour and I think I only spoke like 10 minutes of it. And it's an it's something that I had to learn because early on I was more so I have the answers. And somebody says, well, I don't believe in Jesus. And you have your, you know, your list. What about this? What about this? And then as you listen to people, you realize that 
the issue may not have anything to do with what they're bringing and might have something to do with an experience, a broken heart. But you get to that, like you said, through the listening. You get it through the listening. Jesus was a great listener. Person after person after person came to Jesus and he listened to them. And we have in the in the Gospels short summaries of his conversations with people. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus listened to him. When the Gadarene demoniac came to Jesus, Jesus listened to him. Even on the cross, the thief next to Jesus spoke to Jesus. Jesus listened to him. He heard what he was talking about. He he listened to what was going on in, in his soul. And Jesus was a great listener. And we need to be listeners. It's one of the most important apologetic strategies. And I, I'm like you. When I was younger, I tried to I tried to memorize verses so I could have something to say, or I tried to learn answers when people came to me with their hostilities. But I've learned that probably the most effective apologetic skill is just listening to people and honoring what they say in the sense that, not that we would, would agree with it, but that we recognize it as legitimate and as, as a deep experience that they've had and that we treat what their experiences and their ideas and their convictions, we treat it seriously, we take it, not just something as to be responded to or corrected or rebuked or trumped by some Bible verse. There may be time for all of that, you know, down the road. But just to listen to people, this is, of course, a great pastoral skill, regardless of who you're talking to. So, um, you know, your experience of 10 minutes of listening and 50 uh, of speaking and 50 minutes of listening is, you know, that's not a bad that's not a bad experience, was it, Lisa? <laughs> yep. It saves you time on answering and trying to answer questions people aren't even asking. <laughs> well, and of course, it, it gives you um, it, it gives you an opportunity. If, if I would say that the first skill is listening, I would say that the second skill is knowing what to ask. You know, Lisa, in the Bible, you know how many questions there are? You said, do I know how many questions? Yes. No, 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 sir. <laughs> I have a Bible right here in front of me. It's my question Bible. It's right here. It's open to Jude 3, to, to Jude 1, 3. I have underlined every question in the Bible. Oh, wow. There are, there are 2,550 questions. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. And the very first thing God said was a question. Jesus was a master of the questions. The psalmist, question after question after question. When people came to Jesus, like the man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a great question. Jesus' response was a question. Well, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? Actually, it was two questions. 
And the man said, well, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, well, do that. And then the man asked another question. (laughs) Well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story, and you know how he ended the story? He asked a question. So Jesus said to the man, now who was a, a neighbor to the man in the ditch? That's the way the story ends. And I bring all this up to say one of the most effective apologetic strategies or tactics or uh, skills is to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily give answers. Although I know that there is a tradition in the Bible, you know, uh, have an answer for people who ask us about a, the hope that is within us. But sometimes asking questions, even in response to questions, is a great apologetic skill. And it pulls out of people, as you said a minute ago, what they think, why they think it, what happened to them, and uh, why they are angry or doubtful or discouraged or hostile or puzzled. So asking questions, listening comes first, asking comes second, maybe speaking comes third, I don't know. <laughs> Give an answer, laugh. <laughs> really? Yeah. You you know you have to wait until they really want your answer. Till you know people don't want to really debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, most people don't like to debate and argue about things. Uh, and if we listen to them while they talk and unburden their soul, uh, unwind their mind. then we can ask the questions that reflect our curiosity and that help them think through what their experience is. And finally, we can respond to their question with uh, some things, some scripture verses, our testimony, our experiences. So that's a great thing. And, of course, we try to do this at all of our festivals. You were at the Atlanta Festival where our theme was Gospel and the City the very next year. We went to Indianapolis where our preaching theme, not only for the National Festival, but for all of our regional festivals, was questions of the soul. We picked out 52 questions out of the Bible, and that was, that was the preaching text. Mm-hmm. And uh, produced some wonderful sermons and a wonderful book, which we, of course, sell, Book of These Sermons. So, what did you preach on when you came to the festival in Atlanta? I preached on um, Paul at Mars Hill. <laughs> oh, that's your apologetic interest, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Paul at Mars Hill. That was the uh, text I picked. And well, you, it's interesting. It's such a great text there, the 17th chapter of Acts. And um, um But Paul took as his text, not something from the Bible, he took as his, the starting point for his conversation with them, 
an inscription on one of their tombs. Mm-hmm. So he started the where they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To the unknown God. So he said, here's an inscription to the unknown God. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started right where they were. And this gave him a great opportunity. Eventually, and of course, a little bit later, he, he quotes two Greek poets. Mm-hmm. And finally, he gets to the Hebrew Scriptures, and then he gets to his testimony of Jesus. And for him, that that may have happened all in one hour, but for us, often it takes ten years to go from where they are to quoting the literature that's important to them to quoting some common, commonly respected text to finally being able to share our testimony. What what he did there in an hour sometimes takes us 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? Very right. true. Yeah, very true. Because sometimes you have to walk with people. Um, they have this, uh, this in, in a book I was reading, Incarnational Apologetics, where you kind of walk them through it. And then you get one guy said he, in the book, he testified it took him like, I think, 10 years to win um, a neighbor to to Christ um, but he kind of walked through the steps as you were stating he didn't just immediately jump in there and say do you know Jesus and <laughs> present the gospel like that it was a process of time yes and you know the the testimony of many missionaries is that they have to live among the people for 10 20 30 sometimes 40 years before they have the credibility to tell their own story. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend right now, was my student at Georgetown, who is living in Abu Dhabi, over there in the Middle East, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, where they are building, they're in a massive, sustained building boom. And the laboring people who are doing the building are imported, brought over from Southeast Asia, Bangladesh and India and Singapore and Korea. And they are treated like slaves. They they live in big worker camps Mm -hmm. where the conditions are awful. They are mistreated. If they get hurt, they lose their job. The people pay them miserly wages. And he works among them, telling the story of Jesus. And how long would you have to live with people like this? He is a healthy, relatively wealthy, in world terms, American Christian. And as you say, you have to, the whole theory of the incarnation mm-hmm. is that you humble yourself, you take up their form, and you become a servant. Mm-hmm. Paul wrote to the Philippians, quoting a great early Christian song, became a servant, humbled himself, even to the point of death. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's in, incarnational. Listening is an incarnational skill, don't you think? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, I think I think um, it's it's a task, and it's not as 
as easy um, as we would like it to be. Um, it's something that takes all of us and it takes um, humility, a great deal of humility. Well, you know, this the great hymn to Christ in Philippians chapter 2, which I just quoted, starts off with this preface that Paul wrote. Let this attitude, which was in Christ, be in you also. And then he, he quotes the text of his hymn. How God humbled himself. I mean, Jesus humbled himself. He didn't think his status... As the Son of God was something to be clutched, held on to, demanded. You know, he wasn't a prima donna. He wasn't a celebrity. He gave it up mm-hmm. and lived, lived among us and suffered as we suffer, struggled as we su- struggle, tempted as we are tempted, and was repudiated by friends, enemies, Neighbors, all of this Jesus went through because he identified with us, born in a stable, born in a barn. That's so very true. Is there, I thank you so much, Dr. Moody. This this conversation has been a very rich conversation. I'm definitely challenged and um, really encouraged by this. What would you want, what's the last thing you want to leave with our listeners? Well, Lisa, I want you to come to Lexington in January and preach in our National Festival of Young Preachers. That's what I'm saying to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I want uh, to invite all of your listeners to come to one of these preaching festivals. It is a great learning, growing, enriching experience. It's not the only one you need to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. But it is one that can help. And as we learn to listen to Christians who are different than we are, and at the same time learn to ask the questions that arise naturally in our own imaginations about people who are different than we are, God teaches us how to speak a word of witness to what he's given us. You know, again, I go back to the analogy of the orchestra. Baptists in America are a big group, but worldwide, they're a pretty small group. So I liken it to like the French horn in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. In a French horn, you may have, in an orchestra, you may have three French horns. But you'll have six trumpets and... There'll be 10 percussion and 20 violins. And when I come into an orchestra, I love my French horn. It's actually, in my judgment, the most beautiful sound in the orchestra. And I say, well, God's given me a voice and a sound, and I play it. And when I play my French horn, it helps the whole orchestra sound like it's supposed to sound. But if I were to say, well, I want everybody to be a French horn, put down your trumpets and your percussion and your flutes, and I want everybody to play my instrument, to see the gospel just like I see it, and to 
uh, read the Bible just like I read it, so that we're all playing the same instrument, playing the same note. Who would want to go to that kind of concert? No one. <laughs> no, nobody. Nobody. That they don't have concerts like that where there's only one instrument. Now sometimes you have a virtuoso who plays the piano and or who plays the guitar, but when you've got an orchestra out there, you want a rich sound and a full sound and a delightful sound, all of the instruments, and that's the way I feel about the Christian church. I'm glad, as a Baptist, to play my Baptist French horn. I think we have an important sound that the whole orchestra needs to hear. And if all the Baptists were to quit playing our French horns, the orchestra wouldn't sound quite right. But it's also, we have to stop and listen to the violins and the tubas and uh, every other instrument, and we have to appreciate them. That's what I think, Lisa. So that's what we do at the festivals, and that's what you're trying to cultivate in your ministry. Everybody bearing witness to what we have seen and heard. Not everybody hears the same thing or sees the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like those early disciples, we bear witness what we've seen and heard. Amen. So thank you so much, Dr. Moody, um, for being on the Jew 3 podcast with us. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I um, I plan to be in, in Lexington in January. So I'm excited about interacting with um, the young preachers there. It's been great talking to you. Likewise, Dr. Moody, it's been great talking to you as well. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can catch us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude 3 Project. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. As always at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.